This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. This week, I'm pleased to be joined in conversation by Dan Pearson, an admired voice in horticulture and landscape design in the United Kingdom and beyond for more than 30 years. For 20 of these years, he's been the weekly garden columnist for a number of British newspapers, including The Times, The Daily Telegraph, and most recently, The Observer. He's written several books, including The Garden, A Year at Home Farm, The Essential Garden Book, which he co-wrote with Sir Terence Conran, Spirit, Garden Inspiration, and Home Ground, Sanctuary in the City. He's a contributing editor to Gardens Illustrated, and with his partner, Hugh, he produces digdelve.com, a quarterly online magazine focused on Dan's writing. Dan has a new book out from Guardian Books and Faber and Faber entitled Natural Selection, A Year in the Garden. Dan joins us today via Skype from his London offices. Welcome, Dan. Thank you very much. Let's start with your first home ground and some of your early experiences that led you to being a plant lover, a garden lover, and a lover of most things wild. And I think a lot of these early influences um, begin in your youth and begin with Geraldine. Tell us a little bit about this. We lived uh, on the outside of village, so not within a community but there was a a group of houses in in trees in hampshire in the uh the south of england and um when i was a child i was quite a solitary child there weren't kids of my age living in the area i was quite happy being solitary and i remember quite distinctly uh at the age of five or six an alchemy which uh was unraveled in front of me when my father dug a four by five foot pond in the orchard at the top of our garden. And I then spent the summer looking down into this watery lens laid out flat on the grass at the edge and watching the water clear and the pond life coming to the surface and then erupting through it and evolving and changing from mud to flower. And um, I think it was just a revelation for me that this was a world in itself and it was something that I felt I wanted to be part of. And I was very lucky to be surrounded by enthusiasts. My parents were both enthusiasts in their own right. Mm -hmm. Um, My mum fashion and textile uh, uh, designer and lecturer and uh, my father a painter and and lecturer and so we were always encouraged as children my brother and I to look and to do and to enjoy what we were doing Um, and I became great friends with a neighbor of ours called Geraldine who you referred to who was a retired history teacher and she had a garden just along the lane from us that was as much wild as it was cultivated and she saw no no hierarchy no she was completely unprejudiced about whether a plant was a weed or a flower and she used to go off regularly every summer in her morris minor and bring back plants <laughs> from europe which of course is illegal now but she used to bring them back wrapped in foreign newspaper in the back of her car and um 
And then we'd open these plants together. I'd been looking after her greenhouse for her and she would explain to me where the Ramonda came from and how it had been growing on the side of a cliff with water running down over its leaves and where she was planning to put it in the garden that would emulate those environments. And when we were in the garden, she'd often do things like parts, you know, a, 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 a thatch of weeds, you know, apparent weeds and mm -hmm. inside uh, this little colony of grasses would be some beautiful fritillaria or something she brought back from a previous travel and explained to me where it had grown and why and how and all that really came to life for me through her storytelling and that she was growing these things so successfully in her garden we then moved along the lane um probably four years later to a property that was uh, sitting behind a huge very overgrown hedge which spilled into the lane and all we could see of the building hill cottage was a solitary tree growing out of the chimney from the house <laughs> and there was a hole in the hedge through which an old lady would come through in the autumn called miss joy and she was a recluse and very eccentric and she would deposit windfalls on people's doorsteps from her orchard and that's all we would ever see of her once a year her coming out and sharing these windfalls so when miss joy eventually succumbed to a series of strokes my mother who was brought up in vicarages and had always been surrounded in wartime you know by overgrown gardens i uh, couldn't wait to get behind the hedge and see where miss joy had been and we befriended the executor and I remember very distinctly going for a walk uh, down into this uh, forgotten acre and going into the gloom of the world behind the hedge and the creepers uh, pressed up against the windows and then breaking underneath the skirting boards and wrapping around the furniture inside and uh, laurel pressing against the windows so there was this subterranean green light inside the house and all the curtains rotted up from the floor halfway up the walls and rat holes under every door and you couldn't get round the house because the garden had overwhelmed Miss Joy and had probably overwhelmed her for the last 40 or 50 years and this was the mid-70s and um, my mother fell in love with the property and eventually persuaded my father to buy it so we moved into this semi-derelict house and then spent the next uh, sort of seven or eight years until I left home clearing the garden and as we ventured out further and further every weekend weekend into the garden um, we found underneath the tangle the remains of this forgotten garden which Miss Joy had planted we knew that there was a garden there because we'd found photographs in the house of her in her youth planting trees in the garden and a long formal border leading down to an orchard a pond and all these things we slowly found underneath thickets of Japanese knotweed or brambles that were 10 feet tall and you know an old greenhouse one day we found that Miss Joy had tended at the bottom of the garden so she was really very elderly with a dead camellia in it and an extraordinary place and as we cleared the garden we unearthed all these treasures in the woodland garden that it had become and trilliums growing underneath a fallen oak and a winter sweet hymenanthus yeah. one day coaxing us deeper into the undergrowth by 
the perfume trail that it was leaving on the air. You know, yeah. so we sort of followed this perfume and found the winter suite eventually uh, buried deep in this thicket of bramble. So it was an incredibly romantic place. And yeah. I started to clear the garden. This is a very long answer to your question, but it's okay. I'm I'm great. We, <laughs> We started to clear the garden as a family, having huge bonfires every weekend. And uh, my passion as a young gardener was allowed to flourish with my parents supporting me in restoring and renovating parts of the garden. And with Geraldine's help and advice and uh, a gardening job which I'd taken on in the village uh, for quite a well-known garden at that point called Greta Mill that was owned by Mrs. Pumphrey, I started to amass the beginnings of a plant knowledge, the beginnings of an understanding that if you push against nature, it's just going to fight back really hard because we were gardening somewhere that was bigger than we were. My parents didn't have the resources to hire a gardener. We had some of dad's students coming and helping at the weekends to hack stuff back. But Beyond that, it was down to us, and every move that we made, there was a counter move by the woodland garden that had taken over to reclaim itself as woodland. So it was a little battle that I learned very early on, was this very fine balancing act, and the atmosphere of the place is always something that I call back to, relate back to, as being a very pivotal and influential thing, because there was such a strong sense of place, such a melancholy and wonderful magical mood and this very fine balance between something that was cultivated and something that was wild. You know, I became very interested in that meeting point between the two things, which has really informed the way that I work today. I do consider myself to be incredibly lucky, not just with the people who I was surrounded by as a young developing gardener, but also through finding my vocation so early and having somewhere to explore it and to put together the beginnings of a you know, a canvas uh, of my own making within this old framework of this old garden. Yeah. I'm looking at a picture of the overgrown house of Miss Joy's from your book, Spirit. And through certainly your writing in spirit and the sort of tracing of this journey and these um, this wealth of people who, who added to your life, that idea of place and mood and that interface between the cultivated and the wild, these are really strong threads that run through your philosophy and through your ongoing writing and your ongoing design work around the world. You, you have a really, a really long career in, in design work and in the efforts to articulate what that design work is doing and what it means to you. As you look back over your career, Dan, are there specific jobs or, or design locations that you feel really illustrate well this philosophy and this manner in which you, you work? I think I went through a period of discovery when I followed in Geraldine's footsteps really and started to go out and look at plants in the wild. I first got a scholarship when I was at the Edinburgh Botanics for a year mm -hmm. with some friends and myself. We went off to the Picos de Europa in northern Spain and we drove down through France and up over the Pyrenees and along to the west, east-west mountains on the northern Spain and discovered for the first time really that if you 
see plants growing in the wild, you never forget how they grow, why they're growing with the neighbors that are growing alongside them and what drives those plants to be the way that they are in terms of the conditions. You never, ever forget that. It's an incredible education. So I started taking a trip every year, first of all to different mountains. I went to the Himalayas. Then I started to discover very different habitats. I wanted to see plants growing in different regions and followed through on a scholarship for a year to Jerusalem Botanical Gardens, where every weekend I'd go out and look at plants in different zones, whether they were Mediterranean zones or swamps down on the Kinneret or very arid lands of uh, the Negev or the Golan Heights with seas of giant fennel as far as you could see. Uh, it all became fantastic fodder for me and I started to learn to read landscapes through the plants that grew there. And that was a, an incredible education. And I'd been very lucky to have been introduced to my first client, Francis Mossman, who was a colleague of my mother's at Winchester Art College. And Frances Mossman was a woman of, in her early 30s, she just got a house in Barnes in London and mum and her thought we should meet. We did and hit it off and she commissioned me to make my first garden for her at the age of 17 after I left Wisley. So on these travels that I was making, I was writing back to Francis all the time about things that I was seeing and about a growing idea of how I wanted to work with these plants in a truly naturalistic way, mm. not just to find the right place for the right plants or the right plant for the right place, but also to use them in these naturalistic waves that would supersede each other and interlock and feel appropriate to their place and Francis after four years whilst I was then studying at Kew moved from this garden that I'd made and bought a place called Home Farm mm -hmm. <laughs> in uh, Northamptonshire and after I'd finished my time at Jerusalem Botanical Gardens at about the age of 23 um, I then went to make this garden uh, for her which was my first opportunity really to play these ideas out on a, a big scale. It wasn't big by the scale I'm working at now, but then it was very generous. And I had the generosity and encouragement of a, another creative lady in Francis Mossman, who was always just a step ahead in a way, but not actually involved in the physical doing. She worked in the fashion industry and was very, very good with color. We would have monthly crits I would go up for 14 years that I made the garden with her I'd go up every month for three days and we'd have a crit on every session so I sort of got my art school training through people I met along the way and never went to art college it was a very interesting meeting of passions you know this passion I had for making space and and color and form and texture and and then uh, the horticultural aspect of it as well. So I started to make a garden, which I think Home Farm was the first place that that played out and where I first started to use plants in a truly naturalistic way so that they were emulating nature, emulating the environment, but retuning it yeah. so that we were heightening the sense of place through the plantings that we were 
installing in each of these areas. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. It is full-on summer. Perhaps you are in the very middle of summer holidays here at mid-July. If you're like me, there is a special anticipation to the books of summer we choose to companion us on holiday, at least one of which, for me, has to be a garden book. This year, I recommend traveling with a copy of Natural Selection, tucked into your beach bag or backpack. Natural Selection, A Year in the Garden, is the newest book out by horticulturalist, garden designer, and garden writer Dan Pearson. He's speaking with us this week from his offices in England to share more about the book and his own gardening journey and philosophy. We'll be right back after a break. Stay with us. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back after a break to speak more with gardener, writer, designer, Dan Pearson of the United Kingdom about his newest book, Natural Selection, A Year in the Garden, a compilation of his weekly garden columns for London's Observer over the last 11 years. Welcome back. This is about the point in your career where I started to become aware of you as a horticultural person and what you were doing. I was living in Bristol at that time, and my first child was just about just a little over a year. And the BBC television program about your project at Home Farm, which was based on the book, I was given the book as a as a gift. And then I would watch the, the program with you and my little daughter while I fed her fish fingers and grilled cheese. And we would watch the program. And it was really different at that time for me, certainly as an American living in the United Kingdom, to one, see gardening programs on mainstream television at prime time. That right there was sort of a revelation to me. And the way you were working, collaborating with Francis with some of these ideas and concepts was really, really powerful. The book was already out at this point, and this was about 1999. And, and clearly, you were writing to Francis, and you were keeping journals on what you were learning and seeing. At what point did you know that writing would be almost as important to you as working with plants and, and designing with them? I think it's, it's difficult to say in a way, but I do remember there being a pivotal point um, in my, probably I was 10 or 11, I had an English teacher who realized that this myopic child <laughs> who was only focused on gardening uh, had a potential to be refocused through this connection with words and gardens. Mm. And um, I was very heavily weighted at school in terms of, I mean, I was good at art and I, I turned out to be good at English. Uh, I was absolutely appalling at maths and chemistry. And so the that side, all those teachers thought I was a completely dead loss. Um, and then the music and the art on the other side, uh, it was like I was a sort of split. And what um, Joan Wiggins did really was to make this connection through introducing me to the writers, uh, Vita Sattva West. Yeah through uh, uh, Christopher Lloyd, of course, and his wonderful, wonderful books. Yeah. And, uh, and Beth Chateau and her catalogues and, and uh, writings, of course, <laughs> and her amazingly evocative way with, dis you know, that she actually describes her plant material. You know, she really, 
she'd bring those things to life in a catalogue description and mm-hmm. you'd be sitting there with her catalogue dreaming of this plant, this <laughs> cramby meritima and it's, you know, and it's unfurling leaves, that, you know, the colour of, uh, I don't know, dusted plums, you know, I mean, just extraordinary language that you then could evoke this living thing. So I started keeping journals of my garden activities, you know, so there's, we've got all these old notebooks with lots of very ordinary notes about things that were informative in a way through simply being cumulative. And I think that's one of the great things about the writing is because I've really enjoyed trying to pin down the essence of things in words, whether it's just a simple description or a time at which something flowers and why it's done it. It's become a sort of way that I've thought about the garden and as time has gone on I think the writing has become more and more part of the way that I like to look at things and it was quite by chance that when I made a Chelsea Flower Show garden I I happened to be one of the younger designers at that point I was 27 28 something like that somebody from the Sunday Times the man who used to write there called Graham Rose approached me a young man who'd made a garden that said something you know he sort of thought okay he's this guy's got something to say and it wasn't a particularly well-formed garden I think but it had the essence of something for him to pick it up and we started chatting and he just said would you like to write a column for the Sunday Times and I've never been afraid actually of jumping into deep water usually I wonder what I'm doing there when I've got in it <laughs> um, but I think the very fact that I haven't been afraid to do it is is the good thing yeah because of course you then learn to tread water and then to to to, to get to the shore or wherever you need to be and the column became this wonderful outlet for me to talk about what I was doing and to try and pin down a whole series of experiences for other people that may simply pass through as a, a thought process that f- floats through your mind and out the other side and disappears. And what happens, of course, if you try and pin it down for other people is you capture those thoughts and they then have to be explained and justified and tied together. So actually it really helps in terms of my design process as well, because Uh I'm constantly tying loose ends. um, And I'm not necessarily resolving all of those loose ends, but I'm making connections. Um, So the words have become something that I really look forward to every week. It's not an easy thing to do every week. And sometimes it's painful. Sometimes it doesn't come easily. At other times it just flows and it's a joy. Um, but it's become a habitual thing that I set every side Friday aside for. And it's about looking and capturing and trying to make sense of what I'm doing. It's, it's a nice process, and I like the two things side by side. It's funny because in your, in your very first answer to your early influences and you were talking about your mom and your dad teaching you to look to do and to enjoy and that really sums up for me exactly the way the the newest book natural selection a year in the garden comes across that those three categories fit 
in all of the ways you are writing in your weekly columns and um, sharing with uh, readers. And what was interesting to me as I was reading it was how it mirrored the way I garden and the way I think many people garden, that you are out there doing something and then you notice something and so you're looking at it closely and watching while, you know, a, a plant is in a particular phase or a bird is doing something or a butterfly is nectaring and um, and and then you go back to watering the pots and um, and then you might have a, you know a sort of philosophical thought about the combination of the two things and this felt very much like reading reading your work in natural selection and so for listeners who aren't yet familiar with it natural selection is is your newest book and it's a compilation of your weekly columns from the observer specifically over um, about an 11 year period and just to put it in context you of course uh, as the weekly garden columnist for the observer are writing in the in the footsteps as it were of Vita Sackville West who held the same position as as well as other writers so it is a a kind of storied and venerable position and the the compilation is is really enjoyable talk talk about how did you like from 11 years of columns how did you choose and structure this book what drew you to any one column to say this one gets included i think we've used the we've used the structure of a year in the home farm book and I've used it again in the home ground book which was the book about my Peckham garden and what's beautiful about a year in this country we have four very distinct seasons that you go through a number of transitions which are all interconnected and within that year there are all these fractured moments which are joined by the fact that you're on this continuum you know and it's has its own pace and repeats which of course come back year after year and that's very much about what the process of gardening is you put something in and you're looking forward to it in a year's time or five years time or 10 years time if it's a tree it's a very interesting thing to lock into i think that cycle of a year mm-hmm. so we had a framework that felt very comfortable having gone through 10 or 11 cycles with the observer column and naturally certain subjects bubbled up to the surface with each month felt like they were key and then within that certain subjects uh, or certain articles came through that really felt like they were pivotal in terms of how one might want to discuss, for instance, a very particular time of year. There's one article which I came upon, which I had completely forgotten I'd written, but of course, (laughs) as soon as I reread it, I thought, actually, this is rather good because it pinned down a moment which I'd completely forgotten about in June, where everything is straining for the longest day of the year. It's all pushing skyward, and it's got this tremendous... Uh, young energy which on the longest day of the year in a kind of miraculous moment the energy changes over two or three days and you can see that in the plants Mm -hmm. as they respond and relax and 
begin that kickback as they then have done that forward movement and then relax into the flowering or the spilling out or um, a sense of exhaustion because they've they've done their main push. I think one of the great things about uh, re-looking at these pieces is that they're often things that you forget. I forgot, for instance, that when we lived in Peckham, it really was to that day that the evening primroses would open first time at twilight, just as you were out on the longest day, thinking I'm going to sit down there on the deck and watch the last of the light go and the night start. And as that happened, the first of the primroses would come out mm -hmm. and the moths with them and the longest day would be gone and you'd then be into the second half of summer. And that piece, for instance, was lovely to find um, as it was uh, a piece about snowdrops and that tremendous amount of excitement that goes with that break uh, with the season, um, with that first movement showing you that actually there's a change again and it's a way off yet, but things have started stirring. And with that, your energy as a gardener can start to shift in that direction. And I think one of the great things about being involved with a garden and gardening it is that you are in process and gardening is very much about a process for me. It's not necessarily about the end result. And I have to work, of course, we all do when we're making gardens to an end result. And I do particularly as a landscape designer have to show people this image of what the end result is going to be. But I always try and encourage my clients and also through the writing and encourage the people who are going to read it to enjoy the process, enjoy mm -hmm. that passage that you're in, because that is the here and now is really where you're at in the garden. And um, that's where the joy is. And it's not necessarily about the outcome. Um, so the book was a very nice exploration and, and look back into the process of what it is to move through a year through gardening that year in in uh, in in uh, in a way that is slow and thoughtful and uh, timely. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Today, we're speaking with Dan Pearson of the United Kingdom about his newest book, Natural Selection, A Year in the Garden. We'll be back after a break to hear more about his gardening journey and his hopes for the future of gardening and garden writing. Stay with us. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back with writer-gardener Dan Pearson about his newest book, Natural Selection. We'll hear more as well about his new endeavor with his partner, Hugh, digdelve.com. Welcome back. Hearing you speak about the, you know, the, the break between winter and spring with the snowdrops and then that pivotal moment in, in our year, of the summer solstice and that break, it it occurs to me that the your newest book, Natural Selection, uh, which each column is identified by where it was written or where you were at the time that you were writing it. And so sometimes it's in your urban city garden in Peckham, and sometimes it's on your travels for work, and sometimes they are from your newer, larger rural 
home in Somerset, uh, where I believe you and Hugh live full time now. And so this book strikes me as both sort of a culmination of one phase of your life and a threshold that you have just sort of walked over into this this new part of your life. When when you look at it or the experience of putting it together, for you personally, is it is it more of a culmination or more of a threshold or I think I made a move from uh, our Peckham Garden in London where we'd been for eleven years to twenty acres in Somerset about halfway through my time writing for The Observer. And I had been thinking about trying to move out of London for quite some time. When Home Farm was sold in 2000, um, I hadn't realized how important that garden had become to me. It was like the breakup of a relationship, Mm. losing that garden. Mm. It was very painful. And because I'd put my heart and soul into it, And I knew that I wanted to be part of a place, again, that was bigger than my influence could be, and to be part of a natural environment that I would be gently steering. And I, once this idea had been sown, it was very hard to get rid of it. So we'd go out into the country at weekends and look at a new place and be disheartened about how long it took to get there and uh, how many people there were in the area and too much traffic on the road and nothing seemed to be right Um, and I had my studio in London so a busy life here still have got very busy life here where uh, the move away from London was a difficult thing to do. And then suddenly my friend Jane, I was I was um, staying with her in, in Somerset. We went for a really beautiful walk from her farm one day and uh, I suddenly saw the landscape very differently because she lives on the north side of the hill and we walked out onto the southern slopes opposite and around the landscape. I said, if anything ever comes up here, will you just let me know? And it was an idle sort of passing thought that you have and comment on a muddy walk one day. And then two or three months later, she called and said, the old man who lives in the property we now live in has has died and the property is going to come up and uh, we think you should come down and have a look. So we went down and looked, having had this pot bound feeling, uh, which is the best way of describing it in mm-hmm. London. Uh, we both you and I were ready I think to 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 make a move and uh, we walked down her slopes through the wood over the stream up into the sunshine on the other side and spent 20 minutes looking around this tiny very ordinary house on the side of a hill and turned around and looked and there was this view um, up and down the valley and sun pouring down onto these slopes on a cold February day, and as we walked down the slopes 20 minutes later, we said, so how are we going to do this? Not <laughs> should we? It was just that was it. And it was um, it was as simple as that. And how we then managed to do it is an altogether more complicated story because we had to sell our house in London, the, the bottom dropped out of the market, etc., etc. Anyway, we ended up there, and it's totally the right thing to have done because what it did was allow me to not look into a box which is what I was effectively gardening in London my long rectangular plot Mm -hmm. with very distinct boundaries 
but to look out and the exercise of looking out as far as your eye can travel and into landscape and really having that very strong dialogue with yourself about how much of a mark you wanted to make as a gardener on this uh, naturally beautiful place. You know, it's been a really interesting new chapter to be part of and I feel very greatly re-energized by this move and by a really new way of looking that's come about through its relocation um, and a new approach to what I'm doing. How much do I really need to garden for this to place, place to be right for me? How much uh, is it right to be making this mark? You know, it's it's a fascinating process and a very interesting dialogue I'm then now having about my life as a landscape designer, my life as a gardener, um, my life as a naturalist, somebody who wants to be part of landscape. Um, so it's really become, I'm very, very lucky to have this incredible canvas to think upon and fill in accordingly uh, with my energies and aptitudes for uh, this new chapter. It's, uh, it's, it feels like a complete treat. Would it be fair to say that the that one of the big takeaways from the newest book, Natural Selection, might be pay attention and enjoy the process of these cycles and this work we do? I think the fact that we're in process yeah. is fundamental to the writing. Yeah. And the writing is really about uh, allowing people access to that process and encouraging them to be part of it and enjoying it not necessarily seeing the end result is the thing that's important mm-hmm. um, I think there are I think it was Jung who said that if you could find the thing that made you truly happy as a child the thing that you became lost in as a child whether it was building Lego houses or uh riding your pony or whatever it was if you can refine that as an adult you can free yourself um from all the uh weight and responsibility that comes with being uh, an adult that has to get through life and i think being in process in a garden certainly for me um is how i do that i'm timeless weightless uh free in a way that i'm not in any other way and I can lose what I think might be 20 minutes but it's actually four hours in the garden through simply starting a process and and that for me is a joy. And so taking that thinking about the move to to Somerset and um, and the the publishing of this book and now the taking on which I, I know there's overlapping time periods here but your newest endeavor with Hugh um, digdelve.com talk about that and 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 how it because it, it sounds to me having read a few issues from dig delve and followed you in a, in a couple of platforms that it's taking that idea that you just articulated about process and and flow and weightlessness and happiness and it's moving it to the next step or it's putting it into play in your life. I think uh, 
you know that feeling of uh, waiting for something and there's somebody doing something in the street, a workman working or somebody cleaning a window or whatever. It's actually hypnotic watching that. Um, and I think seeing somebody in that process of doing something and enjoying it or crafting it is, uh, is something that I really feel, you know, we often don't enjoy as much as we could. And, and I realized quite quickly that people are often just as interested in the, the unfinished garden as you're making it as they are the finished item. And this is why I always try and encourage my clients to enjoy the process. And what we wanted to do through dig delve really was to allow people, uh, an opportunity to see what we were doing, uh, warts and all, and for it not to be just about a finished beautiful product. Mm -hmm. It was about what you have to go through to get to the finished beautiful product. And yes, we will show something at its zenith or at its moment of perfection, um, but that's often just a few minutes or moments in that life cycle of that particular thing and the thing that matters is where you've gone through to get to that point and so for instance we're writing on a weekly basis with a, a very immediate result so we'll write uh, the day before or on the day that the publication goes out and that's the beauty of um, having your own site is that you can be completely in control of how that information goes out and you don't have to go through a publishing process uh, with somebody else. It's just the two of us crafting it. We know what we're saying. We know where we're wanting to go with it. And I think there's an immediacy which is refreshing, certainly for us. And mm -hmm. the feedback that we've got from the site is that people have been, they felt privileged to be shown the part, parts of the process that you might not normally see. Um, so that's a very interesting thing, I think. And we wouldn't be recording this for ourselves. You would not be writing a diary to yourself, even if you were a good diary writer that would capture the things in the way that you do if you're trying to explain to somebody else. For us, it becomes a wonderful record. And even in a year, of, just been over a year now of doing it, you know, we can already see the changes. Mm -hmm. uh, that have happened in that year on this piece of land that we're crafting and changing and evolving. And it's going to be a, a, a wonderful record of nothing else. It, it, it's, it is fun to follow along. So I, I, would, I would definitely corroborate that from, from other readers and, and viewers. As we're, as we're sort of getting close to the end of the interview, Dan, I, I, and I know you have touched on this quite a bit, um, in in many ways through every one of your answers um, you know through your your writing and through your design work uh, and your sort of you know not not to over um, overstate that but you're you're definitely a luminary of sorts in the horticultural world and I find your your work especially your written work since I've only seen a handful of your actual design spaces in person um, to be this lovely blend of pragmatics and poetics and um, an observation of the world around you. You know, as you think about horticulture and gardening in the world today, wh what do you hope are the cultural 
effects of gardening or, or, or what do you see as being culturally important about the act of gardening at its most thoughtful? I think there are very wonderful basic things about it. Uh, it's a practical activity which through doing it allows your brain to be free in a way that it isn't when you're not doing something physical. Mm-hmm. And the combination of the two is 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 wonderful and and allowing yourself to drift when you're gardening is um it's often very hard work gardening but it's very freeing um i think on a level another level i think even for those people who would not call themselves gardeners or particularly garden lovers i think there's a whole cross-section of society that is affected by a place that feels right and the places that we're trying to make through the studio here are all about trying to capture a mood that is right, that feels enhancing, that feels uh, soulful in some way. And I think that one of the best examples of uh, why I know that the work works is a project we've been working on with Maggie's um, cancer care centers and we've made two gardens for them now and it's a trust uh, that's set up to help people who are affected by cancer and they make very beautiful uh, signature architect buildings that are the size of houses and associated with hospitals that have cancer units and in the center of those houses is a kitchen table around which people can sit and talk about their problems and find out about how they go about dealing with them and it's a lovely simple idea and the maggie's people have always included gardens or where they can green environments to help improve those spaces and i did one for charing cross hospital and the people who've been using that centre have said to me on more than one occasion, "This is the it's the garden that's really kept me going in a very difficult period because it's about life. It's about something that's evolving and growing and uh, constantly changing and always offering me something uh, that provides a reward. And the fact that the environment is designed to make you feel better, makes you feel better. So they're not necessarily healing gardens. Maggie's would never say that that's what they'd set out to design, but by their very nature they do because they put people in a place that makes them feel safe, that makes them feel more easy to um, contemplate issues. And I think whether or not you've got an issue in your life, gardens are good for you and um and i feel that the work that we do in making these places uh accessible to people and making people feel part of them is something that makes me very happy and i'm very lucky that this is my vocation um and it's very simple. It's delightfully simple. You know, if people say to me, well, what do you do to relax? And I say, well, I garden. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and once again, I might be sounding myopic, but um, I know that's my safe place. It's where uh, the right things happen. It's where I recalibrate. It's where the things that matter are in evidence. And um, it's a very important thing. 
Thank you so much for being with us today, Dan. It's been an honor to have you on the program. Wonderful. Thank you, Jennifer. It's been an absolute pleasure, and thank you for listening. It's been great. Dan Pearson has been a landscape designer for over 30 years, and for 20 of these was the weekly garden columnist for a number of British broadsheets, including The Times, The Daily Telegraph, and most recently, The Observer. He has written several books, including his most recent, Natural Selection, A Year in the Garden, out now from Guardian Books and Faber and Faber. He is a contributing editor to Gardens Illustrated, and with his partner Hugh, he produces digdelve.com, a quarterly online magazine focused on Dan's writing. In the world of garden books, there are lovely subsets of types. The how-to book, the lushly photographed coffee table book, which is also sometimes lovingly referred to as garden porn, and there's garden literature. This last is a venerable, age-old tradition comprising writings by people famous and not so famous that are some part naturalist journal of observations through time and space, some part poetics, and some part pragmatics. They generally contain wisdom, some whimsical and moving illustrations, and not even one photograph. These are works of the heart and of the mind's eye. Dan Pearson's newest book, Natural Selection, A Year in the Garden, falls gracefully and firmly into this category. Join us again next week as the conversations continue on the many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. If you enjoy Cultivate in Place and value these conversations about gardens and natural history, please consider taking three possible actions. Subscribe to Cultivating Place on iTunes or Stitcher. Give the podcast a rating and a review at iTunes. Or, most meaningfully, share it with others who value this level of conversation about natural history and our human impulse to garden. Together, we make a difference. Thank you for listening. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio and JewelGarden.com. The program is made possible in part by the Stanley Smith Horticultural Trust. Our producer is Sarah Bohannon. Our communications coordinator is Casey Gardner. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.